folks and welcome back to another episode of the Knicks Wall Podcast. I'm your host as always joined by my co-host Sean Geddes and Mike Cortez. Uh, also today we have two guests. The first one is TKW staffer Tyler Marco who is writing the review of the upcoming book we're about to just say the title of and the author of but our special guest of, of the show, special guest of the weekend, longtime friend of the brand, longtime friend of the pod, uh, former Knicks beat writer, uh, current NBA uh, masterful, you know, writer and author and everything else. We have Chris Herring. So, what is going on, my friend? How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, I'm. This week's been a lot uh, in a really good way, but I'm, I'm really, really good. I'm just my head spinning a little bit from kind of just the developments of the week. But I appreciate you asking. How are you guys? Good man. Uh, you know. RJ Barrett's come back to life. We can finally stop moping <laughs> about the same topic every other week on this podcast. So, you know, finally things are shifting for the better in our world. I want to see if he can keep this going because it, it's been, it's been really nice to see. I think everybody knows he's capable of having the bursts like this, but then there's all, always the regression. And I think that I've been saying for the longest now, that's the next step for him is for it to not be a, a streak for it to be. I mean, I don't expect him to go out and get 32 for the rest of the season, but you know, just some some leveling out. I think that's for young players. That's the tough part. But uh, yeah, he's been on a tear lately. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping after that. Uh, I mean, really, just an invisible start to the season. That this is just more of the leveling out part now. But you know, remains to be seen. But look, I don't want to spend too much time on current Knicks here because we're here to talk about the book, Chris. We're here to talk about Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history, not just the history, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. It's everybody's. If you're a Knicks fan. You know, if you're a newer Knicks fan, you've been hearing about this era of Knicks basketball pretty much probably since the inception of your fandom. For older Knicks fans, you know, middle of the, middle of the age group, you know, we've been hearing about them since we watched them in our infancy. And it, it's just a, a period of time everybody goes back to the well on, despite them not really uh, coming through, getting over the hump and winning it all per se. But it's one of the more endearing teams that resonated the most with people in this city. And um, I mean, first question for me, just right off the top here is, why this particular era? You know, a lot has been said about this era. You know, for a lot of us, it felt like, you know, I mean, man, like I'm always hearing about the 90s, always hearing about the 90s. But what made you, you know, want to dive into that particular era of the franchise and feel like you could provide like a new layer, a new light to it? I mean, you know what, to, to what you said, and I, I've, I've hung out with you before. How, how old are you, Kyle? I am 30 years old. Okay. So I'm, I, I just turned 35. So I'm not. It's funny, like the, there's a gap between us, but not not that much older. I was four when they hired Pat Riley. Uh, you know, when I took on the beat, and I remember for me what it was. It wasn't that moment I'd heard about it before, but like I remember when Mace passed away. When Anthony Mason passed away, it was 2015. I'm pretty sure it was like the last year or two that I was on the beat there. Um, and I just remember the way people reacted to that. I think anytime someone passes that young, um, it's tough for obviously for the people who are close to that person, the family and everything, but 
the way that fans responded to that, not even when he passed, but like when he had the heart attack to begin with, and then, you know, seemed like they were trying to do everything they could to kind of save him and just keep him stable, uh, which played out over, I think, a couple of weeks. Uh, the outpouring that there was throughout the city. And, you know, I just remember them asking me to write up something short at the Wall Street Journal when he passed away um, and thinking like, man, there seems like there's a lot to this because this was a, it was a good player, certainly. No question, he was a really good player. But he wasn't, you know, like never was going to have his jersey in the Raptors, never was going to be a Hall of Famer as an All-Star once, not even with the Knicks. But you wouldn't know that based on the way the fans talk about him. You wouldn't think that based on the way. And quite frankly, up until, you know, maybe last year or two, Oak was the same way. And John Starks might as well be a god, uh, you know, and and had, you know, I know Charles Smith exists, but like maybe had the single most heartbreaking moment game that anybody has had over the last 25 years or so. Longer than that, because I guess that's more than 25 years ago at this point. So I, you know, from where I sit, there's something to why people care that much about those teams. And there's also something to, you know, I live in Chicago. I live along the lake. I've got, I can see the museums in the distance, including the field museum where they've got the dinosaurs. There's something about prehistoric shit that is really interesting to people. Why people want to go to museums. That Knicks team belongs in a museum as far as like, I mean, you know, and I mentioned at one point in the book that it was kind of like, these were, this was like a prehistoric sort of team in terms of like looking now you know, Steph Curry, if Steph Curry had existed in that era, he would have been an alien. Um, if Charles Oakley existed in this era, he would be an alien. So um, there's something to that, too, about not, and I've, I've had somebody make a, a, a book trailer. It's more like a movie trailer for this book. Um, and I wanted him to do it in part because I was like, you know, it's one thing to say how interesting this team was. And obviously, I spent two and a half years writing about how interesting this team was. But you kind of have to see it. And I think when you see it, you understand, like, this doesn't even look like the same sport. Um, at times, it, it looks like wrestling compared to basketball. So uh, that that was why, is that I think, you know, I wanted people to be able to see what this was and to feel what this was, especially for people that are my age and younger that really didn't get to watch what this was. And um, I think that hopefully I did that. But also, this was a team that got really close. And I think there's always so much focus, you know, especially the last dance and stuff like that, the people that win and the teams that win generally always get featured. So I've got, you know, a couple hundred books over here. These teams always get featured. It's I've got maybe two on my bookshelf about teams that didn't win, that got really close, but didn't win. And sometimes those teams are more interesting. The Fab Five is way more interesting. Those Duke teams, Kentucky teams, in my opinion, it's why the most watched 30 for 30 there's ever been uh, for that reason, probably. The Knicks, I think, are very close to that. Maybe not quite. I think the Fat Five was a little bit different, that uh, they had a, a fan base like throughout the country in some ways that uh, I'm not completely sure. I think the Knicks had more than just New York support, but I think that they're the Knicks are they're more similar to that than dissimilar, in my opinion. And I think that in terms of what they ushered in and also what they prompted the league to usher out is really worthy of being told in a story as if they did win championships. And um, hopefully that kind of care came across in the pages of the book. Yeah, you know, when uh, I was growing up, I'm 28 now, like, same sort of thing. Like, we were a baseball house, too. So, you know, 
Patrick Ewing was basically like a mythical figure kind of growing up. Like I hear his name on like 10, 10 wins and like see his like face on my like schoolmates, like folders. But I really, I didn't get into the Knicks until I was a little bit older and found my own like sports fandom. You talked about like kind of being a kid in Chicago, like at the time, what were your just kind of memories of this team? Like the bulls going up against them. Just. I don't remember. I, I mean, I actually was having this conversation with somebody the other day. So the Bulls and the Knicks played for, let's see, they played in 1991 before Riley was there and got swept. They played in 92 and they super unexpectedly took the Bulls to seven. Um, They played in 93 and, you know, Knicks fans don't speak of that um, other than the dunk. They played in 94, but Jordan wasn't there. I don't think they played in 95, but then they played in 96 when Van Gundy had just started a couple months before. So they played, I think, what does that make? Five out of six years they played against each other. But then they didn't play against each other after that. And that's when I was old enough to know what the hell was happening. So, I I mean, I grew up in Chicago, but when, by the time they got to 1997 and I was a nine-year-old, um, I, well, I guess a 10-year-old, that was when I started paying real attention to basketball and, you know, the only thing I knew is that, yeah, we get parades here in Chicago every year. Um, I thought every city gets that. And it was only at that age that I realized that, like, oh, this is, like, a historically great team. And Michael, I, I knew Michael Jordan was the greatest, but I figured, like, that was just a given. And it kind of was. But I didn't realize that there were teams that, like, he was making it so they never got a chance to win. So I didn't know anything about the Knicks rivalry because I didn't – I wasn't plugged in like that. I wasn't watching games at six and seven years old understanding what I was seeing if I was watching them at all. Seems kind of like how I was watching the Yankees of <laughs> like them over here. Like, so just, I guess going back and sort of like almost like digging through, like, did you find like, you know, digging up like any childhood memories, anything like that as you did, or were you like looking into the context beyond the games? Just what was it like going back into your childhood and this for, Oh, for me personally? No, no, it, it felt very, I don't know that any of it felt that way to me. Like I was, I guess I would say I was a diehard Bulls fan, but I wasn't because, you know, so I, I basically, the last two years of their second three-peat, I kind of at least understood what was happening. And like, if you would ask me as a kid, why Michael Jordan stopped playing after that, I wouldn't have been able to give you the context of like, oh, Jerry Krause is an idiot. Like that came later. Um, so I, I didn't understand any of that. It wasn't connected to my childhood. By the way, I know I wasn't a diehard because then when Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Phil left, they replaced them with high schoolers, and I didn't give a damn anymore. So that's not diehard fandom, but also I don't know if 10, 11-year-olds are capable of, like, diehard fandom when you don't understand the context behind things. So it really wasn't, you know, and it's funny because when, when I covered the Knicks and people would be like, oh, but he's from Chicago, and, like, he inherently has to, like, like he's a hater because, you know, like if I write a, a story that's critical of the Knicks, it was like, I really don't remember much from my Bulls childhood. And like the fact that I'm admitting this as far as like, I didn't recognize the Knicks as a rival because they kind of weren't by that point. They were, the league certainly wanted them to be, but by that point, the Knicks were much bigger rivals with the Heat. Um, and I didn't pay any attention to that either because I wasn't a New Yorker or a Heat fan. So um, I, I really had very, very, very limited knowledge of any of this stuff when I was working on the book and, you know, nothing to draw from, which in some ways was better. And quite frankly, um, you know, I, I've said this before, but like, it wasn't my idea to write this book. 
a literary agent approached me and asked if I would do it. And um, I said, no, basically. And then he asked me again, like once he heard what my concerns were, he basically asked me to reconsider. And then I said, yes. But part of the reason he approached me and that he actually kind of wanted someone like me to do it was the fact that I wasn't old enough to really understand it all because maybe I would have like a built-in, I would think I had a built-in knowledge and then I wouldn't actually research it as hard and go at it as hard and, and go into it with an unassuming attitude. So uh, I, I really didn't draw from anything from my childhood. Like it, it probably sounds a little bit silly to say it that way, but I, I can't think of a single thing that I was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember this. So let me ask this question a certain way. Like I didn't, there wasn't any of that. I don't think. It's funny you mention that because as I was going back, I realized that I know less about the 90s teams than the 70s teams just because I think I knew stuff. And then when I go back, I'm like, I don't remember any of this stuff. But I just want to go back to the process of starting the book. I know you said okay. an agent approached you. When you initially said no, was it because you weren't really into the topic or was it more of like you didn't think you were ready? What was going on? And is it seems like a big task tackling that whole era in a beloved team. Kind of. Uh, no, I, um, there were a couple reasons I said no. Uh, I mean, the, for starters, at least on a personal level, not that anyone else would know this or understand it. Um, my dad had passed a couple months before that, and I was just kind of reeling. It was really unexpected. I'd lost my mom uh, 10 years before that in a really unexpected fashion as well. So I was just trying to kind of keep it together. Um, you know, my personal life was kind of shambled. Uh, after that. And, um, you know, I, I really was still pretty unsure about like whether I wanted to take on something additional. I was teaching. Uh, I was in the middle of teaching a class when all that stuff happened too. So like I had a lot on my plate. I was also covering the league, you know, in a relatively new job. I guess it wasn't brand new, but like I was in, I was in a job that was pretty demanding and requires me to travel a lot and stuff like that. Um, so there, there were a lot of things with that that just, I was kind of like, no, uh, it had nothing to do with the lack of interest in the subject. But I think in my mind, I had always wanted to do a book. My dad certainly always wanted me to do a book. Um, but I always kind of figured, you know, especially like my first year on the Knicks beat where the Knicks were unexpectedly great. Um, in 2012, they won 54 games. And I remember thinking to myself, oh man, this would be cool if they won, because, you know, I'll sit here. I've, I've got a front row seat to it. I can write a book. And a lot of people do that. You know, a lot of people kind of write a book on the tail of a season. And, you know, especially when it's a franchise that hasn't won in a long time. So I figured, you know, I always figured that would be like my first book is I'll just be along for the ride with the team that I'm covering and they win the whole thing. And of course, book publishers are going to line up and want the account of that from a reporter. Um, but those books are kind of a dime a dozen. That always happens. It's I won't say it's not special. I'm sure people read those books and really fall in love with them as fans of the team. But I think there's something to be said for, I have a really good friend, Miran Fader, who did a book on Giannis and it went bestseller and it was fantastic, but it's a lot harder to write about something in the moment because people don't open all the way up with you about everything that happens. The good stuff, the bad stuff, they, they hold on to it. And then it comes out years later, what actually happened or the way something actually happened compared to the way it was reported. So I'll be damned like if I work on something and then it comes out that something happened totally differently than the way I reported it. You know, one of the books I was mentioning before about uh, the second place finishes as opposed to champion, the Fab Five book, Mitch Album, you know, I don't think many people have a bad word to say about him as far as, you know, his 
the quality of his work as far as him being an author. Um, he missed a pretty big detail in that book, though, because, like, obviously there was money being exchanged with the Fab Five. There's none of that in the book. It looks really bad in hindsight, so just miss that, but it's very hard to write about something in real time. So as I thought about it more, I don't have any kids. I don't have a family. I was like, you know, this is probably the most available I'm ever going to be to write a book. And quite frankly, if I want to do books in the future, being able to do one on a ready-made subject that I know people are passionate about, um, if this book does well, then I'll have other opportunities to do more books in the future and maybe can write about exactly what I want where it's my idea. Uh, so all that stuff came into play. But yeah, I was I was a little bit scared just because I, I wasn't of age to have remembered any of this stuff. And I asked around a couple of people, Jeff Perlman in particular, who's written nine books so far and seven of them have been bestsellers. Um, he's done all his books on basically people or teams that he wasn't covering up close, which just means I asked him, like, how do you do that? It's like, you just have to sit and you have to read every piece that's ever been written about them. You got to go through like a LexisNexis search and you just search their name and everything that comes up, you've got to read it. You've got to reach out to every person they've ever known, even the people that they haven't, but had some connection to them that maybe they weren't aware of. Uh, you buy every single media guide from every year that you're even looking at or thinking about every employee that worked for the team, not just the players, not just the coaches, not just the executives, but the marketing people and the secretaries and the people that answer the phone, the community outreach people and the ushers and the people that sit at the scores table, everybody. So it's, it's as involved as it sounds. And uh, that was how I interviewed so many people. But I also think it made the book a hell of a lot better because those are the people that folks don't bother quoting and interviewing because they're not the players. Most people just stop at interviewing the players and the coaches. Those are the sorts of books that make for the one where it's like the team won the championships so and now I write the book and you get their perspective, but you miss the larger picture that other people could have filled you in on. So I, I at least hope it made it more complete that way, but it's, it takes a long time. And because I didn't take a leave of absence from my job um, to write the book, which is called the book leave, I was also trying to write about the NBA at the same time. So it was like, it took a really long time to get the book done because I was trying to juggle a lot. Um, and, uh, and the pandemic happened, which bought me more time because I wasn't having to do as much with work, but was still kind of like a terrifying time with anxiety and everything. So there's a lot going on, but, uh, but I think that that was the way I wanted to approach it was just to kind of knock on every door and interview everybody that would talk to me for it. Uh, so I'd have more detail. Yeah. Well, I'm like, Sorry. Um, I just wanted to say that, like, you know, some of those nuggets from the book that come from like the marketing people and things like that are some of my favorite ones, like the uh, the Riley Rings picture, like uh, that he shot down, just things that you wouldn't get from just talking to the coach and the stuff. I really, really, really see the like how in depth he went and it really shows it. Thank you. I really appreciate that, man. I just wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned you had to ask all these different people, you know, not just the people who, like Marco said, you would anticipate to ask the like coaches, players, whatever. I want to ask you more every time. It's amazing with these dogs. Every time. I wanted to ask is that mellow? That is mellow, man. Every, he, he always, as soon as I come off mute, it happens every time. Hey, nobody will believe me. Not, 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 a, not a peep while I'm on mute. They're sleeping, nothing. And then the second I, I press my index finger on the button, it happens. I don't know what you it is. You should have let I, him hop in after after Marco with the question. I should have. I should have. I this is my own fault, really. But now I, I wanted to ask you, um, who's if anybody, you know, you had asked talk to a lot of people. Is is there 
somebody sort of surprising that this led you to talking to that you didn't anticipate talking to that when you kind of found yourself on that path of, of, of reaching out and asking them, you're like, damn, like, really? like I, I didn't think I'd be interviewing so-and-so for a, a 90s Knicks book, but here I am. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like, who's the most, like, why am I calling this person? There were a few. Okay. Um, Bill Russell's daughter, I was trying to get in touch with. Um, she went to Georgetown at the same time as Patrick, and she had written an op-ed in the New York Times about the similarities she saw in a really sad way, in my opinion, about... Um, and I actually didn't speak to her, but I, I wanted to, and uh, I think she kind of got cold feet. But um, she'd written an op-ed in the New York Times about the fact that Patrick was from Boston. Obviously, her father had played for the Celtics during a time where Boston was pretty problematic as far as race relations. Sometimes still a little bit problematic, but anyway, um, that, you know, pretty problematic from a race relations standpoint, just that, you know, the idea of busing and integrating and uh, that people had problems with that in Boston, suburban Boston. And so the fact that Patrick was from Boston and that Bill Russell had played in Boston and the fact that people were saying that Ewing coming out of college looked to be like the next coming of Bill Russell. And then the fact that, Karen Russell went to Georgetown at the same time as Patrick. She was saying that she saw a lot of similarities as far as the way he was treated and sort of the racist treatment that Patrick was receiving, and then it made her sad. So I didn't expect to reach out to her. I didn't even know that she'd gone to Georgetown. Frankly, didn't even know that Bill Russell had a daughter. So someone that's not a weird sort of person to approach, but like I felt like it was a really interesting perspective that I wanted to talk to her about more. Um, so. That, I remember reaching out to this guy named, um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Pete Favat, who uh, he was like basically uh, a marketing person, kind of like a, a commercial marketing person. And um, he was apparently like the guy that was handling, that Converse put in charge of handling like their shoe campaign stuff. And so they wanted to try to, I mean, Nike was dominating everything with Jordan at that point, um, but Converse was able to sign Larry Johnson, who was a huge deal coming, like a massive, massive deal coming out of college out of UNLV. And so it was a big deal for them to get him as a number one pick and a guy that people thought would just be a total superstar. Um, and he walked me through, the reason I wanted to talk to him is because he was the guy that led the, the Grandma Ma campaign. And so he was walking me through the ins and outs of how he even threw that idea out to LJ and basically was like, I, in my mind, mentally kind of, when I went up to his uh, penthouse apartment, mentally kind of sketched out an exit plan because I was basically asking him to be like a cross-dressing grandma for a commercial. And that was my idea. And Larry Johnson's like this big cock diesel sort of dude who might like, I mean, from the way he was explaining it, like if Larry had laughed him out of the room, that would have been a good outcome because he was worried that Larry would like pulverize him. So he was like, I needed to know where the closest door was to get out of there in case Larry like lunged at me or something. So he walked me through that and just the concept and how scared he was to introduce the concept to Larry and then how excited he was when Larry like lit up at the idea that he'd actually had. And I mentioned this in the book. The first idea he had was to, you know, Converse's biggest names at that time were Larry Bird and uh, Magic Johnson. And so the first concept for the idea that was kind of the more conservative one, which actually was, I thought was like a huge concept, to have uh, a guy lying on a gurney with a sheet over him, uh, kind of like a Frankenstein sort of thing, 
and then because his name is Larry Johnson, have Larry Bird. He's basically like the the basically the love child of like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and so then you get Larry Johnson, uh, and then Larry Johnson just kind of emerges from this journey like Frankenstein style. Uh, and so he threw that idea out at Larry, and Larry was like, "Oh, that's okay," but he could tell like he wasn't super receptive to it, and so then he introduced the other one, and he was you know, basically ready to piss his pants because he was afraid and Larry just loved it. And so that was like, I didn't expect to go to him. That's not that unusual of a person though. I mean, I guess just the people in Mason's orbit were interesting. Um, they were all friends and stuff like that, but kind of hearing just the backstories and some of the people that I didn't even quote, I ended up interviewing people that were like friends of Mason's mother who would kind of just hang out with Anthony because he didn't really have a father figure, would hang out with Anthony and just kind of watched him grow up. Um, but certainly all the roommates and the college teammates and stuff like that of his, the ones that were telling me that like, you know, that they ended up being roommates with him because his first roommates were creeped out by him because Anthony would flick lit matches at them uh, and didn't want to get burned. And so they would immediately request new roommates. Um, you know, I talked to the women, you know, the, the fiance of Anthony Mason and the women that he had children with and their openness with me kind of surprised me. I was, I remember being kind of afraid to approach them a little bit. Afraid is probably a strong word, but like a little bit nervous to approach them because obviously when it's Anthony Mason, you're going to ask some questions that are, um, you know, like he was a notorious character. I think he also was like a really redeeming one in some ways, but he was also very notorious. Everyone knows that. So the, you end up approaching a lot of people. Um, I ended up talking to a finance person um, about the detail in the book about Pat Riley uh, and the idea that he shelled out $10,000 of his own money to have the team go gambling. And, um, and then Riley <laughs> getting upset with the team when they didn't reimburse him for it. And so talking to the person about why they struggled to reimburse Pat Riley and what that expense process was like, like literally like the expense system they were trying to use and stuff like that. So that was an unexpected one too. But like, I guess everybody else more or less made sense. I guess I'd have to look at the full list of who I tried to talk to, who I did talk to. Um, I'll give you one more. The wife of uh, Dick Carter, who was an assistant coach during those years. And one thing that I was cognizant of, I know you have to make every call, you just have to do it. But for me, I'm kind of a shy person as far as like just cold calling people, it makes me nervous. Um, Dick Carter passed away, I think, in like 2011, if I remember correctly. Um, he was Pat Riley's assistant. He was kind of the one that basically it brought the Pistons style of defense to the Knicks. He was a, a Pistons assistant um, with Chuck Daly in those years. But anyway, um, so he died in 2011. And if he were still alive, he'd be like in his 90s, I think. I'm pretty sure. So I obviously can't talk to him. But I did want to be able to, I was at least at one point interested in telling his story in the book. And um, so I was like, you know, I, I probably need to call his wife. And it looks like, you know, it looks like she's still alive. Let me call her. So I called and I'm talking to her. And I can't remember what I said. I think I said something about the fact that I was nervous about calling her. And she's like, oh, you thought I was like 90 years old, huh? But Dick Carter married a lot younger. So she's like in her 60s. <laughs> so she's like, you don't have to be nervous about that. Like, I'm, you know, I still got it. I'm still, I'm still pretty sharp. I was like, okay. I think, and I think that is what it was. It's like, you don't want to call people and they're not even sure like what you're talking about. Like, you don't want to, you also don't want to be so 
ingrained, have it ingrained that like people aren't sharp at a certain age. But I was always kind of nervous and shy about calling people that were well into their 90s. There were at least four or five people that I called and over the course of the book coming out had passed away, have since passed away, which is sad. Um, but anyway, I don't know, more answers than you probably needed. But I, I don't know if anyone was totally unexpected, but there were people that were like pleasant surprises in a way or like people that I'm really happy that I spoke to because I learned stuff about them or learned stuff about the people that they were connected to. So across all the people that you spoke to, like you did vast research with a bunch of different, you know, a range of people in and out of the organization um, on such a polarizing team in time, what do you feel like is possibly your favorite nugget of information that you came across? Like my favorite nugget that I came across. Um, honestly so one thing i wanted to get to the bottom of with this book is like you kept hearing about the gambling stuff kept hearing about it um and every team gambles so like i, I feel like you have to have details that really suggest like how much they like gambling you can't just say they gambled and it and, and reporting and journalism the way that we describe it is like you show rather than tell you don't want to just tell people that they like to gamble that that's basic you can everybody can do that everybody does that in the nba anyway they're very competitive people so i i talked to chris childs and um you know I, I got on the subject of gambling with him and he starts telling me about oakley and he was like oh yeah it was really intense and those guys at the back of the plane actually the front of the plane i think and he's like it was so intense and Oak, man, Oak really was intense. And I had people telling me that, like, you know, a lot of people, I couldn't really corroborate, so I didn't go with it. But there were people like, yeah, Oak, man, he, there were times I really don't want to gamble with him because you got to keep in mind, he came up with Michael. And I, there was one person in particular, I think it was Jeff Sanders, told me in Chicago with Michael, everybody wanted to be in with Michael so people would, like, help Michael cheat in terms of the card games and stuff. So, like, Oak came up around Michael. So you didn't really want to play with Oak because you were worried that it wouldn't be on the level. So I didn't, like I said, that wasn't in the book because I, you know, I didn't find enough people to say anything like that. But uh, the, the, the detail that I probably, if I had to pick one that I just think is wild, uh, it's in the book with um, Oak getting frustrated with other teammates who won't gamble with him basically because they, you know, and I think rightly so, you know, Oak, Starks, Mace, Patrick, all make very different amounts of money than like the young guys. Um, and so the idea that everybody's going to hop in the same game for the same money is not really feasible on some level because like certain guys can't really afford to do it. They get money. They get a lot of cash per day, which is called their per diem to be able to get food on the road, stuff like that. And so they're handed that money in cash, but it's still like when you're talking about 50, 60, you know, $80,000 card games, you can't just ask like a young guy to pay that. The money wasn't the same as what it is now. And even if it was like $80,000, it's still a lot of money. Um, so Oak started getting upset with people and their excuses. So he essentially bought a credit card imprint machine that they don't even really use those anymore. But he was like, all right, enough of y'all fucking excuses. Like now we've got a credit card imprint machine and you can't use the excuse that you don't have cash anymore, enough cash to play the game with the big boys. Now I've got my machine and now you're going to play one and two when you play if you use my credit card machine you're going to pay me a tax to be able to do it it's 10 percent off the top if you do that 
and I'm going to do it through your credit card. So to me, when people told, when Chris Childs told me that like Oak was that serious about gambling and that he had a leather duffel bag that he always carry, you know, 50 G's in when they're on the road, like to me, that's a good example of trying to show someone something as opposed to just telling them that they like to gamble. And that was probably my favorite detail. Also on the subject of gambling, the idea that Patrick Ewing was playing the lottery most days cracked me up because I'm like, this is like the highest paid player in the NBA and he's still trying to win more money. <laughs> so that, that made me laugh too. Uh, but this was, this was a fun, fun team, an interesting team. I mean, um, colorful team. I, I, I think you guys probably would have found them fun too. Though. Yeah. Um, back with uh, Pat too. One of my favorite uh, stories uh, about him came like later in the book when um, he's visiting UNC and you talk about him, like, waiting online to get up breakfast and he grabs two glasses of orange juice and Roy Williams just like, you know, help yourself, big fella, have whatever you want. And I was sending this to my friend and we we're trying to calculate exactly how much orange juice drank <laughs> that morning. So you, you, you mentioned, you say he comes back with 18 glasses. You know, if that includes the two he already had, or did he have 20 total? <laughs> I'd have to go back and ask Roy Williams, <laughs> but he he remembers it so vividly. I think it, I think it was probably that he had two and then got an additional sixteen. But Roy said he came back with eighteen. So I maybe I'd have to go back and ask Roy. He's got time on his hands now, so I should ask him. Um, but yeah, that that's one of my favorites too. Yeah. yeah, I was sending that to my friends, and we're like, all right, eight ounces of glass, eighteen. <laughs> like how much OJ? And I feel like that really illustrates, you know, his Pat's background and stuff. Like you're. You find these anecdotes that are like small things that really like speak to like their backgrounds, their characters and like that. I was a man that perspired a lot, so he needed a lot to drink. I mean, 18 is a preposterous amount of OJ. I mean, how much vitamin C does one man need? That is, I don't think I've had 18 glasses of orange juice in the last year, let alone <laughs> in, in one sitting. It's just, it's, I'm trying to wrap my head around like, like through, like you get through like ten glasses, and you're normally like, all right. I mean, this is this is becoming a work. This is laborious now to try to drink all of this OJ. It's a power through to get to eighteen. Is a it was a hilarious <laughs> bit, even for a giant man. Uh, you know he drinks more, but eight eighteen's a, a hilarious number to have stumbled across as we read. <laughs> yeah, that was, Roy, I, I called Roy Williams. Uh, well, I, I set up an interview with him, and he he's still so fond of Patrick in that that moment. Uh, that's also so crazy to me that I, and that's been out there before. So it's not like I uncovered the fact that, um, that he was at UNC for that weekend. Patrick's talked about it before, but the fact that he was there the same weekend as Jordan, that they were recruiting them basically as a package deal, not trying to sign them as a package deal, but that they wanted them there to visit at the same time that Michael was pretty locked in on going there and they were trying to use him to entice Patrick and that they played like a one-on-one -on -one game together for all of two minutes. And I like, I, there were so many things in this book that I would have paid so much money to have watched happen, starting with the first page of the book with the Xavier McDaniel, uh, <laughs> Anthony Mason fight. I was the, one of the first calls I made once I started to kind of hit enough of a rhythm with this was to the video coordinator, uh, Bob Salmi, who I quote a lot in the book, by the way. Um, he was one of the like most, I unexpectedly, he was one of the best quotes I had in the, in the book as far as just like, each time he appeared, you knew he was going to say something wild, uh, which you generally don't get that from coaches. But anyway, um, I asked him a couple times, is there any footage you've got from those years? Like, 
in particular, like that first day of practice where Mason just swung on Xavier McDaniel. He's like, no, I don't have that. But he did have a bunch of stuff. I guess he was telling me that he had sent stuff to Pat as like a birthday present or just like a hello gift or something. So he sent me a, a, a USB to plug in and a bunch of files on there have never been seen before. Um, he would make videos. I described one of them in the book that what he made one time to just try to get the Knicks to calm the hell down um, because they were always getting in fights and always getting in tips and skirmishes. And he basically was saying, like, we're developing too much of a reputation in the league. We're like, we're really damn good on defense. We're a really good team. But people are starting to think of us as like these, you know, these assholes and these guys that are just, you know, we're angry all the time and that we're hot-headed, and it's starting to overshadow how good we are. And if we're not careful, like, our legacy is going to end up being more about our behavior than about, you know, us being winners, which we are. So, like, let's straighten this out. And then then you had the Phoenix Suns incident. And then, you know, but anyway. So he he put together video clips for old stuff that he had done during the 90s that I guess he just held on to. He gave it to Pat kind of as a gift several years ago. And he was like, I've still got it on my computer. I'll just throw it on a zip drive and I'll, I'll send it to you or on a USB and I'll send it to you. So he had stuff where they would, they, there's one Christmas where they did like a Christmas party or something. And the guys were all doing karaoke together. And so you've got Anthony Mason and all these other guys, doc rivers just doing karaoke and the coaches doing karaoke, Jeff Van Gundy up there with Dick Carter and Bob Salmi doing karaoke. Um, and he had it, it almost looks like the old MTV stuff where he was like splicing it with that, with the commercials and, you know, looks like pop-up video almost. If you've ever seen it, you guys might be a little bit too young for that, but uh, he put together something like that for me to look at. And it was just so cool to, to watch. Um, so that was unexpectedly really fun too, like stuff like that. Bob Salmi was a great person to talk to for the book. He, he gave me an anecdote that I didn't use. Um, I think Paul Nepper used it in his book that he did on the United States, which also people should read, by the way, it's really good. Um, the one anecdote I didn't use for the book, uh, at least the part of it I didn't use. Um, so Greg Anthony left a loaded gun in the lock in the weight room one day after working out. I have that in there. But what I didn't put in there is that Bob Salmi was the one to recover it, the assistant coach. So he retrieved it. I guess he felt the need to give it to Pat Riley, who was the coach. And Pat always would watch film in his office, but he would always have his office completely dark when he was watching it, the only light that he would have in the room was like the projection screen on the wall. So Bob walks up to his office and he opens Pat's door, but he walks in the door with a gun in his hand. So Pat like looks at him and is freaking out because he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Bob essentially has a, I don't know, a loaded gun in his hand. And Pat, you know, is thinking about all the times he's called Bob out of his name and everything. And if he's wondering if he's about to go postal stuff, that was funny. And that was something I couldn't quite find a way to like kind of wrestle that in. I used the part of it about, you know, Mace or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Greg Anthony uh, with the, you know, leaving the gun, but I didn't mention the other part just because I was like, I can't think of a natural way to include this. So I don't know. There was a lot of cutting room floor stuff, obviously. One thing, I mean, you say there's a lot of things that you would pay to be a part of or pay to see. And I think that hearing Doc Rivers do karaoke is something I need in life. <laughs> that has I'll to be have to find it. Maybe I'll try to put it on. Uh, maybe I'll try to put it on Twitter. I'd have to ask Bob's permission to do that. But initially, what I was hoping to do, uh, we just ended up doing the standard like bookmark thing. I asked my publicity team. I was like, "Can we make 
copies and send out like the USB to people so that they could have this like behind the scenes footage of the Knicks basically. Like I feel like that would entice people to pre-order early. Um, and maybe it would have in some cases, like the diehard fans would have wanted to see it. Um, and they're like, we could probably make use of some of that stuff with our promotional stuff in the videos we make about the book before it comes out. And I was like, okay, we never really got around to doing it, but also Bob sent it to me and it's kind of, you know, I could ask him whether he's okay with it being shared more widely. He, he has videos on there that um, are kind of like strategic and kind of showing the Knicks, like what their defensive principles are. And um, he has one video and I guess this is what prompted me to have my book trailer made where he's got one video where it's um, the song, never going to get it. He has that playing in the background and it's basically the Knicks just knocking the crap out of people for like two minutes. And then it ends with this, um, just this text on the screen uh, up floating above Madison Square Garden that says, welcome to New York. And I was like, I, I kind of wanted to use that, but I was like, well, that's his video. And so when I talked to Jade Hoy, um, who's, you know, worked with the athletic and count the, uh, count the dings and everything. He, uh, I basically told, he asked me, what did I want out of the video? And I was like, I just want video of them just knocking the crap out of people. Like that's kind of what they did. And I kind of feel like it'll be red meat for the fans. Like this will turn people onto them or show people that don't know what they were about, exactly what they were about and how they played. And, you know, we were talking about making a minute long video and Jade had like three and a half minutes and we could have done more. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, we, there was a plenty of video we could have used, but um, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll do something with it another time. No, I, I was. I'm glad that that's where you just went with it because I actually wanted to ask you specifically uh, a little bit more about Pat Riley because he's a character, right? I mean, Knicks fans feel a lot of different ways about him. We know this, you know. We know that the the larger the backstory with him, but it was very interesting to see the intricacy uh, intricacies with him throughout the book. Yeah. But one thing I liked in particular was the antidote of um, when handouts were being discussed for the '92 '93 team. And seeing where Pat Riley drew the line, because in my head growing up, uh, he was kind of a madman, right? Like that's sort of like the the aura around Pat is he's this godfather figure, this madman, this kind of gangster in basketball, who kind of do whatever. And then when I was reading uh, the part about the handouts, I kind of chuckled to be like, oh, like, like that's where he drew the line. Like he he wasn't more on board. Like when I read their ideas, because it says like, uh, you know, the 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 one part about. The, the chalk outline of a human bi uh, body lying in the blue painted area <laughs> of the right. floor. And then beneath right. the image, it said, tough town, tough team, the 1992-93 New York Knicks. And then uh, <laughs> and then you mentioned that there was another one after that. This is the one. Just, when I read the words Mack truck, that's when I lost it. But it said there was another one which featured a Mack truck roaring through the middle of the page, coming right at the reader. And if you want, saying, if you want to know what it's like to play the Knicks, stand here. And, you know, the same <laughs> line at the bottom. And then basically, you mentioned an uncomfortable Riley spoke up. You know, I think these go a little bit too far. Because in my in my warped brain of knowing the the previous Pat stuff, I was like, I thought he would have jumped. I would have jumped all over those. I would have been proud. Like the, the <laughs> chalk outline one, I would have greenlit immediately. I wouldn't have needed to pass it by anybody. I would have just been on board. So seeing Pat be like, you know, yeah, sure, we're going to pay guys. You know, no, nobody in the paint, nobody in the paint. Don't help anybody up. But the chalk outline is where I draw the line. Like I, just seeing like where he was, he, he drew the line right. in the sand for me. was pretty interesting upon. You know why he probably was like that though. I, I, I bet you do. I mean, it's like, I, I think it's, it's a subliminal messaging. I think that Pat, like you, you can say knock Michael Jordan to the floor 
to your players, but you can't say that in the media because then you're viewed as dirty. And then you also give ammunition to the other coaches to call you dirty. And you might get in trouble just from the league, uh, which that wasn't a dance. I mean, I, I have an excerpt out uh, that will basically outline, like, I, I, the headline, something like, you know, the 1990s Knicks fought with everybody, including David Stern in the NBA. And, I mean, it was something where the league was on them about everything. And so if you gave them something and handed them something that says we're out to hurt you, the league is going to pounce on that and punish for that or just be tougher on you about it. You know, so there, there, there was no way they were going to be able to do that. I think that's what he was saying. That doesn't mean he was opposed to, I mean, hell his defense was trying to lay people out. Uh, so you're, you're spot on with what you're saying about that. I just think that that it was subliminal. It was something that he could say to his guys, but you couldn't say out loud. Um, you know, he he wanted guys to hard foul people in the lane. Uh, that, that was never a question, but um, he didn't want people to know that that's what he was saying, uh, even if it was clear that that's what they were doing. Yeah, too, um, kind of going back to the, like, sort of, like, tough guy, you know, even Northeast tough guy aesthetic. Like, I think it's maybe Chapter 12 or so, you titled uh, Long-Term Parking. Which the second I got to that, I just cracked. Like I knew where it was going, and I was just so I was praying for the reference. But uh, yeah, I just right. <laughs> want talking about um, Dolan and uh, basically going to uh, Checkers and getting uh, rid of Grunfeld at this point, and basically calling it like akin to sort of you know spoilers aid getting hit in season five of Sopranos. Just watched with my girlfriend yesterday too. I had never watched it before the pandemic either. I never watched it. But then once I watched it, I was like, I got to name a chapter after this. That's exactly what I want to just like, were you purposely just trying to pander to the base with this? (laughs) You know what it was? I think there there were a couple of things. One, yes, it's a Northeast team. Uh, Two, I mean, a lot of y'all really like the Sopranos. Three, I really liked it when I watched the Sopranos and I had just gotten done watching it when I was kind of rounding third base with that chapter. Um, But four... Um, I think, what was the line I've got in there where I think I said, um, Jimmy wants it to be Ernie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Sopranos, everybody's name ends like that. Like, uh, Pauly, Tony, uh, Chrissy. So it's like, there was something about the end of the names too, that both fit that. And he was asking for someone to be taken out. So it was like, it, it fit for me, uh, I mean, yes, it, it fit perfectly as far as I was concerned. For people that get the reference, they get the reference. But it was funny because I posted one night. It's crazy. Like when you've got, like, I felt so bad just now that we're over with it. Now it's out. I felt so bad just about how far in advance the book was kind of put out as far as the pre-sale stuff, which I think was the first week of August. And um, because people pre-order it and it's like, you've got to kind of keep plugging it as the author I'm not completely comfortable in my own skin with that. So I'm trying to just retweet everybody else. Um, it's uncomfortable. There are people that were posting interviews and stuff before. Hell, you guys did that. And I, think I, I so appreciate it. I'm trying not to jump the gun with other stuff because there are other people that have technically, you know, said that I, another person I said, I'll give you guys the first interview. Um, so I'm trying not to promote other stuff that makes it look like I was being disrespectful to that person. Anyway, um, but you feel so bad when like it's, August and you're trying to promote the book 
but you don't want to be overly annoying about it. So like you have to put stuff out there that people enjoy seeing or want to see or want to read, but you don't want to like pump the gas, like, you know, pump the, pump the pedal too much uh, to the point where you're annoying people and turning them off. So I remember one of the first things I'd rolled out there was like just the chapter summary and the chapter list. And people saw the name of that chapter. They're like, is this what I think it is? And I was wondering, like, I wonder if people know what the chapter's about based on that. And I don't think people did. But to me, I think it's fun. Like, to me, my favorite part of the whole process, this sounds so weird and in the weeds, was naming the chapters, like, by far. The other shit was kind of brutal. Like, I obviously, when you get good anecdotes, you're excited to use them and excited to make hay with that. And, you know, after a while, structuring the chapters and trying to figure out what I wanted in what order and why was fun. I liked that, but to me, like once it was over, like naming the chapters was really fun for me. Trying to figure out like, how would I sum this up? How do I make it a fun reference? Some people just use chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. Like this book wasn't meant to be just like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I wanted it to be, the chapter names would be just as fun as the book hopefully was for people to read. No, I definitely could tell you were like having some fun with it. And it really, it, like I said, like, I mean, I just smiled when I got to that one. Some of the other ones too are all great, but that one in particular, just like, thank you. Yeah, it got me. <laughs> uh, Chris, if you could just get into the weeds a little bit, just because writing a book is one of my dreams. So I just want to get back into sure. the process when you're writing the chapters, is it kind of just because when I think of writing a book, I don't know, do you write it in a systematic format where you're like, all right, this is going to make for a good chunk. Or you kind of just throw up on the page and then kind of just build chapters. Oh boy. So I'm excited. No, no, no. I'm excited at some point. I don't know when, I don't know what the subject will be. My agent's been asking me like, what's next? Spike Lee asked me the other day, what's next? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. Um, but what I would say is, um, I mean, I wrote multiple versions of this. That's part of why it took so long because I, you know, I've never done this before. I didn't know what I was doing and it wasn't very good. You know, the first two times I'd say maybe even the third time it wasn't very good. Um, but what I started doing, I wrote the first chapter, um, you know, I tweaked it later, but like I wrote the first chapter, it was basically what you see now. Um, and then from there, actually the second chapter of the book that I wrote was the Anthony Mason chapter, which I think is chapter nine, if I remember. Uh, so I did that because I was like, you know what? He, I, I've said this to myself, everybody is equally important just as far as like, you have to get everything right. That's the most important thing. But to me, um, the way I viewed it, I was like, his story is the one I want to be the most careful about because I know people are curious about him. I know he lived a really interesting life. I know he was notorious. And I know people are kind of gunning to see what is going to be said about him. But also, like, these are the people that are trusting me the most to really take care of what they're telling me to safeguard that stuff, to like be careful with it, to not make them look like a total cartoon. So I spent probably a month and a half really just talking to like everybody in his life, uh, son, you know, fiance that he had a child with, uh, the college girlfriend that he had a child with, um, his barber that, you know, that, that <laughs> put the patterns and the designs in his hair, uh, childhood friends, I was saying before, friends of his mother's, uh, who passed away a few years ago, um, college teammates, college, the, the trainer from the college team, uh, you know, you name it, I talked to them. And then obviously the teammates with the Knicks and stuff too. Um, 
and coaches that coached him in other places other than the Knicks. So, you know, I talked to them, but I really wanted to get that right. And so I spent a lot of time on his chapter, even though it was out of order. And that was really the only one where I was like, I'm just going to go completely out of order to do this because I want to start getting that stuff squared away now. Uh, so I don't know if I needed to do it that way. But to your point, what I started to do after a while, like I had in my mind, I'm going to need a chapter about Pat Riley. I'm going to need a chapter about Ewing, Oakley, Mason, Starks. And then after that, like, who else do I need a chapter about? The one guy that I didn't see coming, that I did not see that I would, you know, think that I would need to write a chapter on was Charles Smith. And um, he's got one of the earliest chapters in the book. I think maybe Pat Riley and Oakley come before that, but I think that's it. But basically what I started to do, like, it was difficult because I was doing, to answer your question on the most basic level, there are eight seasons I've got to account for. 91 through 99. Eight years. Uh, and if I'm doing that, you want to tell the story of each season, but you don't want to be like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. So I started trying to think about themes. Like, okay, the first season is basically about Riley because he's new to the picture. So we want to talk about Riley his upbringing, where he came from, his system, how long it took guys to get used to his system, how long it took guys to get used to his personality, the sorts of trips and stuff that he would take his players on is kind of a bonus. So we can maybe encompass a lot of that stuff in Riley's chapter early in the book. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, what do we go to next? Okay, Riley made these guys into like monsters defensively and physically. So maybe we can get in somewhere the idea that they were just really feared. So, you know, the first time he really started with that messaging of like knock Michael Jordan to the floor, okay, we can do that. So we can talk about their physicality there. And maybe we can save a little bit of that for the next chapter and talk about how Charles Oakley got to be as physical as he did. So that was why I got into his chapter there. And then it's like, okay, we're talking about the physicality. Then they brought in guys on the team that were a little bit different, including Charles Smith, who wasn't physical at all. So maybe we can tell his chapter here. And obviously the reason I want to do that you can't write about that 93 season without getting into Charles Smith. So I know his chapter has to be there. So it's kind of like, it would be like if you had a puzzle, certain pieces just don't fit in certain places. Uh, Charles Smith has to go in that spot. Like he's the only piece that fits there if we're going to tell his story. So that was why I did it that way. The one that I'll say, and, and similar to that, you're going to be talking a whole lot about John Starks when you talk about that 94 finals. So that was why his chapter went there. Um, the one that I struggled with most was Patrick's because most books certainly of this length and of this you know this serious in nature um for nonfiction books you always put the superstar at the beginning of the book always like it's like a given because that that is the heartbeat of the team generally um the most important player on the team I didn't want to do that here and I didn't that he was towards the beginning of the book but keep in mind and this is why I did it this way Patrick was like five or six years into his Knicks career by the time the book starts in 91. So the way I saw it, he's not really a new character. He's an established character by that point. Uh, yes, I need to have him mentioned a lot early in the book, but to tell his story through like a third or a fourth chapter, I felt like would have been inappropriate because to me, if I had to rank order the importance of everybody in the book, Pat Riley was the most important character in this book as far as I was concerned. Some people, my agent in particular was like, are you sure you want to have Pat Riley in the cover? I was like, yeah, it's not even a question because for the first four years he coached the team. 
And then for the next four years, he was like the arch enemy of the team. So he was always in the picture, either for good purposes or bad purposes, but he was always there. And he's one of the only people you could say that about. But he also was the new kid on the block when the book starts. And that's why the book starts in 91 is because they hire him and it changes the trajectory of the team. So I, I tried really hard not to force Patrick at the beginning of the book. And I actually put him in chapter 17. And that was where his big feature chapter was. And the reason I did it that way is because you always want to capture a character, in my opinion, from the reading I've done, when they're in a period of transformation. Riley was taking over the Knicks. It's a different challenge for him. He's transforming the way he coaches, at least in a lot of people's minds, from the Lakers to the Knicks. Um, Charles Smith, you know, has like this horrible moment that it just kind of seemed to spell doom for the way the rest of his Knicks career would go. Um, Charles Oakley was having to adjust to what the league wasn't going to allow as far as him playing or the shit out of everybody. Um, Starks goes through a transformational moment, you know, and I guess in a negative way for the finals as far as, you know, part of what his legacy will be. So everybody's got that. Patrick's moment of transformation wasn't 91. It was 97 because he shatters his wrist to the point where, like, they're questioning whether he's going to be able to play basketball the way he's done before. Um, he gets caught in an extramarital affair with a team dancer and his marriage shatters. Um, he becomes the president of the players union, which is going to end up being impactful in 99 because of the lockout and because he puts on weight because he's not able to work out the same way. Um, any number of things, like not that I mentioned it at length, but the gold club stuff was when he started to kind of get involved in that, like was around the same time. So within a two year span, his life really changed a lot. And to me, that's way more compelling than the idea of like, oh yeah, Patrick was the most important player they had. So like, let's put him here in chapter two, chapter three. Like I could have, but I, I just kind of feel like it would be, it would be slow and kind of boring to have it there when you can still tell that story and just be in a later spot. And throughout the book, you learn how important he is to the team. It's not like I'm not getting into that, but I just kind of felt like, let me focus on him wholeheartedly in a place where his life is really fundamentally changing when he's trying to figure out how to age as a player. That was a big part of the, the tension there was that he was kind of aging out a little bit and still wanted to be the franchise star. And Don Nelson kind of saw the end coming early. And, uh, you know, and then Patrick shattered his wrist and it really didn't become apparent to other people in the organization until then. Yeah, you know, when I was you know reading this and like as a writer too, like every chapter, like it would be so easy to get, you know, bogged down in all these tangents, all these details, all these backstories. But I feel like every single one that like pops up, it, it just pushes the narrative forward. It does the job. And I was just, you know, I was just impressed, honestly, reading through that. Like it, it flowed so well. And I really liked that format where sort of like you talk about like a, uh, a player or coach who's important to that period and use that to sort of tell the narrative. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. There was one point in particular where I was like, I don't have a player to use here. Help. What am I supposed to do to move the story forward? I think it was chapter 10. I think it was standing out in the crowd um, where it was the chapter between Mason and him getting suspended and, um, and the chapter between that and when they would have started the finals with Houston. And so then I, th that was the toughest one for me. And then when I came up with those, like, I think this works maybe where I was basically trying to tell the story through people that were in the crowd. So I started with, you know, an anecdote, a fun anecdote, I thought. The Knicks did not think it was fun, apparently, um, about JFK Jr. initially being stashed and the 300 level 
as a season ticket holder and the Knicks realizing it later being like, Oh shit, sorry. Um, so there was that. And then I, you know, I think I used that. I used the, the New Jersey Nets example of them, the Knicks sticking the Nets team doctor and like the 300 level basically too, um, during a playoff game. And then Derek Coleman just killing the Knicks in a game, but then Charles Oakley, I think hitting him and making him bleed. And so it took the Nets team doctor forever to get down there. And it essentially shifted the game and, you know, helped the Knicks win the series because it took too long for him to get to Derek Coleman and get him stitches. And then, you know, I was using that as a gateway to get into Spike Lee and the whole Reggie Miller thing. And so that was the, probably the one I struggled with the most where I was like, what can I even tie to this to make it relevant? Um, because I don't have a player that really fits here. That was like a key guy, but Spike was the key guy in that chapter. And uh, so I think, I hope that worked. I think it worked, but uh it was it was it was difficult for a while. It's like you, you feel like the way I described it when I was writing the book is like a lily pad, like you're a frog trying to just jump from one lily pad to the next to make everything connect and not fall through and not have something that's just a random. There was so much stuff I cut because it was like this is random. There was one other one I really worried about. I think it was chapter 12, uh, commitment issues, I think. Um where I actually asked a couple of my friends and one of my friends I really respect is like, this doesn't work this way. I used it anyway. So hopefully it works. But um, I started talking about Anthony Mason proposing to Latifah Whitlock. And I used it as a way of basically saying like Anthony Mason was always dishonest with women about the fact that, you know, he'd say he worked at McDonald's and that he was a fry cook and because he essentially didn't trust that women would want to be with him for him. Uh, and so he finally trusts this woman enough to propose to her, you know, comes back at like three in the morning and, horses are out of bed and proposes to her like three in the morning but whatever um but i use that as a gateway to get into pat riley having trust issues with the knicks apparently you know and uh so i that one like it took that was a long kind of lead up to that portion where someone was like that doesn't to me that doesn't really track like i get what you're doing but i feel like you're spending too long on mason's part just to bring up the idea that pat riley started to question whether he should stay with the knicks or not so maybe not everything worked perfectly but that was the thought is it I wanted to connect things as well as I could. Um, sometimes there's a perfect marriage and it just works perfectly. Other times it's a little bit more challenging, but yeah, it's difficult because you don't have a player that you can always use to, to tell a story through or a new player to introduce. Cause you don't want to keep using every Anthony Mason anecdote. You have to make everything attach either. Yeah. And I'm happy you did focus on Charles Smith because I've recently found out that hating Charles Smith is not, a rarity it's actually i think you compared him to steve bartman which is pretty true i guess looking back on it would you kind of say that stark should really love charles smith because that incident has kind of overshadowed the finals i know the finals was high profile but i feel like starks is pretty beloved very beloved by the fan base while charles smith is kind of just like get this guy out of my fucking face oh I, i'll say this i don't think that starks would be viewed any differently if charles smith hadn't happened i, I think that you know, the, the difference between them, the, obviously the similarities, they both had a horrible moment at one point. Um, the difference is that Starks had so many positive moments to kind of outweigh that, at least in fans' minds and hearts. Charles Smith, like, if I tweeted right now to all my Knicks followers, like, what's your favorite Charles Smith memory? First of all, it would be really mean to do that to Charles Smith. But secondly, would anybody have a single answer like, can it, I mean, I know you guys are too young. I'm, I'm too young, too. I, I don't know that anybody would know. Like, I mean, it's just... And part of what I wanted to do in that chapter for him was humanize him. 
you know, I, I did the interview before with Will about this and told him, I, you know, frankly, with with that situation, I I called him. Everybody kept telling me he's not going to talk to you. He's not going to talk to you. I called him. I emailed him 17 million times in different email addresses and everything, different people trying to get through to him. No response. So it felt like he was dodging me, ducking me anyway. I did call him. He didn't know my number. So he picked up and, you know, didn't know who it was. Uh, I could hear the subway doors closing behind him. So I didn't even realize he lived in New York City, which is like not to say you need to be looking for other places to move based on what happened in 1993. But I imagine New York, based on what you're saying and the idea that you're saying, like, I didn't know how many people hated him. It's probably not the easiest place to live from that standpoint. You know, um, I've had Charles's friends tell me, some of his friends tell me that he's reminded of that constantly in terms of like people going out of their way to say something. Like, I can't even imagine what it would take for someone to say something to him about that. It just seems really cruel. It seems kind of over the top. It seems like something you'd see on Twitter where it's like, if you don't have to see someone face to face, maybe you do that. But like, I would never say that to someone's face. Um, I also would never say it on Twitter, but other people would. Um, so the fact that I could hear the subway just close behind me, like immediately made me feel like, man, this, this dude really is still in the midst of like the place that all this stuff happened. Um, living it every day, being in public transit, apparently every day. Um, so I wanted to really humanize them because I think, first of all, you read through the book, I would say that the book, I think, is at least critical in some ways of virtually everybody at some point. Um, not me necessarily having to do it, but like at least pointing out that this person doing this had this impact. From Patrick on down, I think everybody's got a moment like that. Um, certainly Pat Riley. And I think if you had to ask me for like a laundry list of the things Pat Riley got wrong or was like really, really kind of off about, he had a really skilled player at his disposal. And I don't know if I would say he misused Charles Smith, but I do think he kind of looked at him as like a defective toy at a certain point where he was kind of like, okay, I thought this guy might be able to do this, this, and this, and like, he can't do it. So now I just can't use him. Like he used him, but like he used him out of position. He challenged him and basically said, you should be able to play by now on this knee injury when he was suited up, or he was not suited up to play. And he basically asked him to suit up anyway, because he challenged him in front of the team. He was like, if I needed one minute from you tonight to win a title, could you give me that minute? Uh, and he was like, yeah, of course, coach. He was like, well, then why are you in that suit instead of a uniform? So he went to go put on a uniform. Um, like that's like, I mean, the other things he did, let's go through the list since I brought it up. He told the team that the psychologist shouldn't be allowed to deal with the players anymore. Can you imagine that in today's mental health environment in the NBA? Would not happen. The idea of two, two and a half, three hour shoot arounds would not happen. Um, you know, <laughs> the messaging was a different thing. And I think I can, like, I don't think that that makes anything wrong with him. It was just really intense. But there's there was a lot of stuff, man. And I think the Charles Smith stuff was kind of, the height of where you have like people from even other teams, people that played with Charles Smith on other teams saying Pat Riley, I, I didn't even play in New York. And I know Pat Riley kind of ruined Charles Smith. Like, I think that might be extreme, but I think Pat made pretty clear early on. He really didn't want Charles. It wasn't really something he signed up for, particularly when he didn't really fit from literally the first day of practice. Pat Riley was kind of like, what is this? Um, so granted he wasn't a tough guy, like everybody else on the team, 
but for a team that really struggled offensively, there might've been ways to get more out of him than what he did. Um, and even down to the point of like, okay, so you've got a starting lineup of Harper and Starks. And then you've got Smith and Oakley and Patrick. Why not just put Mason in your starting lineup and use Charles Smith off the bench? Then you can let him play the four and the five, which is kind of what he is and where he's more comfortable and has more space that way. Um, so, you know, I mean, he did go between the bench and the starting lineup at times, but I just, to me, there, it just seemed like there was more that could have been done with Charles Smith and like a team that had very little finesse on it. Like it, it wasn't, finesse was like a bad word on that team, but it shouldn't have been. And so Pat was one of the key guys where I, I, I someone asked me the other day from the heat organization, can you, uh, or not the heat organization, someone that's tied to the heat. Can you sign a copy of the book for me and sign it out to Pat? I want to give him a copy of the book for a birthday or for Christmas next year. So I was like, are you sure Pat wants a copy of this book? Cause like, it's not, not to say that I'm like trying to be unfair to him. I think I was more than fair. He saw a list of my questions after he declined to be interviewed for it. Uh, just to give him another opportunity, even after he said he didn't want to actually talk with me. So he, he probably knows what's coming, but like, I don't, I don't know if it's the most flattering portrayal. I just think it's how he was. And you know, credit to the guy that asked for the book for Pat. He was like, I think he knows. Like, I think he takes pride in most of the stuff you're writing about. I was like, one more thing that makes him just kind of different, I guess. But uh, yeah, interesting, interesting dude. I think Pat Riley was the most interesting person in the book if I had to rank order everybody. No, that's what I was going to say. I, I didn't think he would have been shied away from that stuff. I think the whole mystique of who he's built himself into be in, in his NBA career is sort of that guy and leaning into it. I think if anything, it's more just the circumstance of like the time period that exactly. You know, yeah. Like, I, I don't think it's more like, cause when I was going through it, I, I didn't get the, like the vibe that anything was like, Oh, look at these horrible things. Nobody knew about Pat. Like it was more like, nothing like that. Yeah. It was more like, yeah, this, I, I assumed stuff like this with Pat Riley. This is just the details of what those things were like a long shoot around things like that. That, like you said about the psychiatrist, obviously I couldn't have envisioned that, but like, then you hear it and you're like, Early '90s, Pat Riley, tough. Yeah, yeah, okay, checks out. You know, nothing to see here. Like, it wasn't anything bad. Good point. Think it, it's got, it's got to be. He, he's got to know. He's been around a long time. He's a little long in the tooth. You know, like he, he was around before that too. He's got to know. Can I ask you guys something? I know you yeah. guys are throwing questions at me. I'll ask you guys something because I've been thinking about this more, and it's not something I thought about much while I was writing the book. But I think now that I've had some distance from it, do you feel like, based on what you read in the book? Like, people talk about how Riley leaving, some people say this, not everybody, that that's the worst thing that's happened to the franchise in the last X years, number of years, uh, worst mistake that was made. They should have just given him a piece of ownership. You know, Miami's benefited, the Knicks have been horrible. Do you feel like he actually could have lasted in New York based on what you read in the book? And do you feel like that argument of, like, letting him go is the worst thing? you think it's overblown when people say that? You know, I can't, yeah, I can't say if I, you know, think he would like, like thinking about it now that you bring it up, it does like he was talking about the tabloids and stuff like that. And I think especially, you know, I think the biggest what if is if Pat gets a piece of ownership, what happens when like, you know, Cablevision comes in and Dolan and stuff like, I think that's really the, like, the sort of hinge point on this where it's like, you know, could this have gone differently? And yeah. I, 
could be it's pretty bad <laughs> that that happened like yeah. no, I, I th- I imagine riley sure. dealing with dolan that would have been hard about that. <laughs> that wow that was, talk about different owners between mickey harrison and jim dolan wow anyway but, that, but that's kind of how i felt i didn't think it was i think it's overblown i i do i think i think the timing of it makes it feel worse than it was because i feel as though just sort of the the gruff and the character that he was at some point it was going to wear down whoever he was going to have to come across, whether he had a part ownership or not. Like you just mentioned with the Dolan thing. Like, I feel like at some point, like someone was going to not want to deal with him and the the a bridge would have been burnt at some point. Anyway, I feel like that was sort of the vibe I got reading. I feel like it was sort of an inevitable thing. Like it was more of a power play to appease him at that time. And then they didn't do it obviously, but I feel like had they done it, sure. Maybe you buy yourself, another stint right another three four year block of time. right exactly yeah my, my thing i think too i would probably feel differently about it and that it was a bigger mistake i mean it was obviously there they probably could have handled it a, a slightly different way or done something to make him a little bit happier but i would feel differently and i think it would be a different question too like if van gundy had been a nick like because van gundy told me he was he was really upset that the knicks didn't let him go to miami riley wanted to bring him with but because Riley was still under contract and so was Jeff, the Knicks were under no obligation to just let him walk. They would have just been letting him walk away um, when he was still under contract. So he was upset that, you know, that Riley wanted to bring him. You know, Riley has plans for him. Jeff's not under the impression that the Knicks necessarily have plans for him in New York. So he was upset. But if, like, let's say they bring in Don Nelson and then they fire Don Nelson and then it's not Jeff as the coach and then you lose Jeff to Miami because the coaching staff turns over, whatever. Then it's maybe a different argument, I think, because then you don't have any of Riley's DNA in the organization anymore. Jeff Van Gundy had a lot of those traits. I mean, he was a very different person. Definitely not the dresser that (laughs) Pat Riley was, um, which Pat pointed out to him. But I don't, you know, they got another five, six years out of that style. Not completely the same thing. The league had changed the rules, so you couldn't be a team that just bludgeoned people anymore. But I, I... you know, I kind of think that they had more years with that. And even now, you know, granted, I don't know that people recognize it, but they have someone that kind of still has some of that DNA now. Um, you know, I think much to the chagrin of some of the fans as far as minutes are concerned. And, you know, but what have you? What can you say? I think I think Riley probably would have burned out, but I do agree with Kyle that I think if, if they'd figured out something from an ownership standpoint, who knows? Maybe that's what's kept him tethered to Miami. I also think, Moving into management was helpful for him because, like, I think he realized even in Miami that he was burning out. It, it just it, it takes a toll on someone that has their foot on the pedal as much as Riley does, I think. You know, and sort of, you know, going back to that uh, that DNA still in the organization, like, you, you close uh, the book really talking about, like, last year with Tibbs and sort of, like, know how he is like a, a dinosaur in these ways i, I was the uh the uh, the two a days uh and ago yeah and they're about him holding them like three hours past and like giving them 45 minutes between the first two a day and the second i just wanted to like sort of what's your vibe like around like you know seeing tibbs there on the sideline now looking from now a more outside perspective like writing the whole book what do you f- you feel that's still there and I'm too far away from it to be like an expert on it. So I don't want to speak from, you know, like beat writer, Chris Herring would have probably had a different opinion or more of an opinion. Um, I still see it sometimes. Uh, Even, you know, 
in his different coaching stops. I, every time I, every time he does a media day, I'll put it that way. He always says something that tells me like, he's still got the foot on the pedal more than a lot of people. I mean, and that's somewhat obvious when you look at the minutes that RJ and, and um, Julius have played, you know, at, at times or last year when they were leading the league in minutes or whatever. Um, the moment for me this year was, it was lighthearted enough to where I think people missed it, but I was like, hmm. Um, media day happens. They're introducing Kemba. Our friend Mark Berman asked the question, oh, you know, uh, Kemba, uh, I'm wondering, you know, last year you played the, the, the back-to-backs and, you know, you, you take the break on the second in the back-to-back. I'm wondering, basically, are you going to play back-to-backs this year? And Kimba's like, I don't know. You'd have to ask coach. And then you got Tibbs in the front row. He's playing. And everybody starts laughing. But I hear that response. And even in real time, I heard the response. I was like, okay, he might be kidding, but he might not be kidding. And then you get the season. Kimba's on fire to start the year. And it's it's very clear there's a lot, like the battery drains a lot faster now for him. It's very clear. And I mean, I think there's a happy medium, by the way. Like if you're going to ask my opinion, you haven't. But if you're going to ask my opinion, I think Kimba can play. I just think it has to be like on a minute sort of restriction or that it needs to be like he can never play back-to-backs. Obviously, he can't. Um, but Tibbs was joking about it, but I don't know that he was joking when he said that. And so it's a good example of like... And, just playing someone obviously is not the same as two a days. I get that there's a difference between the two, but like understanding your personnel a little bit and looking at someone that basically couldn't play back-to-backs last year, like why would he be able to play him now? You know, I don't know, maybe Derek Rose in the way that he started to kind of recover physically. I know he's, you know, coming back from something now. So I get that, you know, even he has not been in perfect health this season, but maybe watching someone like Rose or maybe the idea that Thibs has had guys like Taj who just always, been able to get through everything and play through everything. There's a part of me that feels like that's still very heavy on his mind, but he feels like he can always work through it. Um, you know, having a good training step maybe helps you work through it a little bit, but Kimba is who he is as far as like physically. And he's been like this for a few years now. So I, I still see some remnants of it where it's like, he, I feel like he generally tries to justify what he's doing with the minutes and justify the, the amount of the amount that he's putting on guys' shoulders from a playing time standpoint. So I don't know what it's like behind the scenes with the work and the practice. He always says that he's pretty easy on guys in practice, and he kind of uses that as a justification to work them harder in games. Maybe. I don't know. I don't see practice. I don't, you know, I don't know how that works. Maybe there's some truth to that. But um, like I said, generally speaking, when whenever minutes and workload come up, I feel like he always kind of justifies whatever he's being asked about by pointing to the fact that he doesn't practice his guys as hard. And there was a time where he did. So, you know, if he's practicing them less hard than before, that still might be harder than what other teams are doing. I don't know. I'd be curious to know it for myself too. So just to shift gears slightly, I mean, they very clearly hated Reggie Miller the most, right? I mean, of all the guys that they played, like, because I grew up, obviously I'm 30. We've been over this with the timeline with our ages and stuff. I don't vividly remember all the 90s stuff, but I remember enough or at least enough that was told to me from older Knicks fans that I grew up with, family, friends, otherwise, you know, that I had to hate Reggie Miller. Now, I've lived my life very proudly as a Reggie Miller hater uh, because of this. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I muted every time he's on TV. I can't even stand to listen to this guy even 1%. But, you know, 
I think there was a line in the book about, you know, Starks wanted to, you know, cut his, uh, you know, his parts off. I mean, we, we swear on this, this, this pot, I don't even feel comfortable s- speaking to the violence uh, oh, of, that, of that line. But he yeah, to to yeah. I, I get it. You know, I mean, I get it. I mean, I, he's insufferable, but I mean, that was, when I read that, I was like, oh, like, we thought they like basketball hated him. They hated this guy. Nice to know it extends past the fan base. It's yeah, like the like I, we, we always yeah. hate people. We always hate people. It's nice when like they genuinely hate somebody too. And it's just like, okay, we, we thought, but now we know. I mean, Starks was, so that quote too. And I, when we talk about things that like I was saying before about uh, to Mike before about the idea of like what to, how to structure stuff to put in the book, what to leave out. I did not have that in my first version of the book. And um, I think <laughs> my editor, his name's Ummer, he asked me at one point, um, I was like, do you mind if we have one conversation before we completely turn this in? Like, I'm going to give you like my cutting room floor detail. He was like, okay, yeah, I'd like that. So I had about 50 things on there. We went one by one with each one of them from Doc Rivers' wife trying to run through like six security people to get down on the floor uh, on the court because Isaiah Thomas had um, kicked Doc on the floor. I think that the clip of that kind of made the rounds over during the pandemic of uh, Isaiah doing that to him. But yeah, somebody told me that um, that Doc's wife was like trying to get down there to like beat up Isaiah Thomas from the, the crowd. Uh, so there, there was something like that. Like I was like, even the wives are kind of like, you know, flagrant too. So I kind of wanted to put that in there, but I was like, I couldn't find a clear way to do it. Um, but of the things that were on the list, I had that quote there from Starks. Um, and I didn't talk to Starks for the book. You could probably guess why, because the Knicks didn't help put me in touch with anyone or give me the okay to talk with anyone. So, um, shocking, shocking revelation. That. Shocker. So I, um, I did have that quote though, because it was in Mike Wise and Frank Isola did a book on the 99 Knicks when they made the run to the finals as an eight seed. That quote was in there and I was like what and like I looked for that quote on the internet you know Lexus Nexus saw it nowhere and I was like you know I can use the quote because it's somewhere else but because that's such a weird quote and I didn't get the quote I was like I don't know if I should use this and my editor's like you have to use this you're talking about how much these guys hated Reggie Miller start specifically you have to use it like it's been, and like, not to mention like the same publisher that published that book is the one that's essentially publishing mine. So they're like, you're on good footing because we have lawyers. They lawyered that book. They're lawyering yours. You're fine. I was like, okay. So I put that in there because of that, but that quote, yeah, they really hated Reggie. And like, I don't think there was enough of an admiration for Michael as far as how good he was to where I don't think there was a question of like, and Patrick is like best friends with Michael. So it's not like those guys and Oakley likes Michael. I mean, Jeff at one point had to tell them to stop liking Michael so much because he was taking advantage of them. So it, you know, there, there wasn't, there was enough of a respect there with Michael. He was the biggest killer of the era. Reggie was right behind that. And they really didn't like him. And not to mention, I've got Reggie's book here on my shelf right here. It's called, I love being the enemy. And literally the first words of the book are, I hate the New York Knicks. Those are the first words in his book. Like, so the hatred flowed freely, uh, very freely. And it's it's interesting because now I kind of feel like, you know, I don't think the Starks and Reggie hang out. I don't think they speak. 
but you could tell in hearing Reggie talk, I think that there's, what would I say? I think there's an appreciation for the fact that that rivalry happened is maybe the most I could say that it was a, it was a really good rivalry during those years. And uh, I think that's really all you can ask for, but those guys did not like Reggie at all. No. No, it definitely built up. I think a little bit of a legend going across both ways because obviously like, you know, we've said a thousand times this pod about the, the Michael Jordan stuff. He referenced the last dance and that's always going to be the stuff that gets brought up the most because the bulls were the bulls. You know, the Knicks were a larger team at the time, a rival. But, like, yeah, it, it's nice when you have those rivalries that exist that aren't just, like, the top-billed ones. You know, that, that was sort of the beauty of the Knicks, I felt like, growing up. was, like, there was there was multiple teams that we were told and, and knew that to, to hate. It was the Pacers, right. the Bulls, the, the Heat. It was like, wow, you know, I, I love how many times, like, we, we're playing it. You know, a lot of times people have, like, one rival. Teams got one rival. Right. It's nice when it's or like – or none, right? So it's nice when, like, oh, we're playing the Heat tonight. I hate these motherfuckers. Oh, we're playing the Pacers tonight. I hate these guys. Re- Reggie Miller, we're, right. we're, you know, oh, my God. We, we got to assault this man. Oh, we're playing the Bulls tonight. Oh, my God. It, it's like, it's right. nice when you when you got a nice little stable of, of hatred to kind of revolve around and kind of muddle Like 12, 15 games a year. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that was the thing, and that was part of what I wanted to get across in this book is that part of another thing that we probably will never see again, it's really rare to see teams that have two, three, four rivals. I mean, we don't have any real rivalries in the NBA right now. I mean, the last one that the league tried to make a big deal out of, I mean, aside from y'all and, and the Hawks, which that, you know, when, when Trey Young has to sit out, you see how thin that rivalry is, if you could even call it that. Um, I mean, the Warriors and the Cavs played each other for four years in a row in the finals, and it was a really lopsided rivalry. I mean, it just wasn't. It was basically like, oh, you got LeBron over here and you got the, you know, the Warriors over there. And especially when KD hopped on the Warriors bandwagon, there just wasn't, I mean, there was no contest. So it's been really difficult to see true rivalries in the NBA. The Knicks had so many of them and that was like such a 90s thing. They did not like those teams. Those teams did not like them. And there was a good chance that a fight was going to break out because of it all the time. I mean, they had fights with all the, I guess they didn't really outright fight the Pacers, but there were certainly skirmishes and flagrants within those series. And they legitimately fought the Bulls and they legitimately fought the Heat um, more than once in both cases. So, you know, I we'll never see that again. And that's part of what, when you talk about why I wanted to do this book or why I agreed to do it, you're never going to see this again. The league has made sure of that. Um, and I think there's something to be said for like an outlaw sort of team that makes them really compelling and fascinating to write about. Yeah, um, sort of back on that um, rivalry note, when I was uh, reading it, I kept sort of like the last dance has been the comparison, you know, it made a lot and stuff. And I'm reading this, it sort of almost felt like the villain's origin story, <laughs> like giving the like, I mean, these guys know I read the Game of Thrones books like three times or whatever. And the whole thing is like, you know, they're giving you the villain's point of view through like, you know, Khaleesi through like that. And that's sort of, and then by the time you get to the end where they're like that, it's like, Oh, we've been following the bad guy all along almost. And I just really enjoyed that different perspective on the decade, especially like during COVID I showed my mother uh, the last dance and like, she got so into it and I'm excited to like give her this book too, to like, sort of like, you want to see like more about the Knicks on this side. And I'm sure she's going to run right through it. Like, I'm hopeful someday that 
I don't know if we'll have last dance, but I'm hopeful someday that this will be something that people can watch on film as well. Uh, it's, I think you're right about the idea of like people, the, the, probably the most common question I've gotten on Twitter with it being on sale now is, will I like this if I'm not a Knicks fan? I, I'm not a Knicks fan. Should I still buy it? First of all, even if I thought the answer was no, I'm going to lie to you because I want you to buy my book. Secondly, um, <laughs> I, I, I intentionally really tried to bake in a lot of things that would be interesting to anybody. Even if you're not a basketball fan, there's hopefully enough stuff there that's interesting. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I At one point I started thinking about it. I was like, if you kind of randomly did like a word association game with me and you named any one of the other 29 teams, I guess there were probably only 25 other teams at the time back then I could probably mention a detail either for my reporting or that's clearly in the book to tie it to another team as it relates to those Knicks or, or not. But I mean, like there's so much stuff there. And I, like, I would say with their cheap rivals, there's stuff in there that's never been written about before. That's never been out there before that is, you know, kind of put out in this book. So to me, I think between that and just understanding what the league was or how certain rules changed, or why these guys didn't like each other, or what really got under certain people's skin. Like, there are probably still people out there that don't really understand why Jeff Van Gundy and, and Phil Jackson really were not friends. I mean, granted, we know why they weren't friends, but like why Jeff Van Gundy did not like Phil. This book makes that really clear. And it's not that it was me needing to do it. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I hope there's plenty in there for everybody, but uh, I, I, I'd certainly tried really hard to, uh, to make this something that could be enjoyable for everybody. And yeah, I'm really hopeful that, you know, if, if even if your mom doesn't read it, that someday there'll be a documentary for her to watch on this. I, I'd be curious because obviously the Bulls won uh, and won a lot six times. So there was a lot to do a full 10 part documentary. I don't even know if we needed 10 parts, but there was a lot to do that on. There's a lot of footage. The Knicks didn't win. And I understand that, you know, people have said, why write a book on a team that doesn't win? Um, I've already explained why I think that they were about as fascinating as it gets for a team that didn't win. They were close to winning. The league changed their rules because of this team, and those rules helped us get the NBA we have now. So I and, and the Knicks were in the background of every important thing that happened, seemingly. So I think that they're more than justified for that. I don't know that they need. I don't know how many parts they would need for their documentary, but I did. I was cognizant, like writers are always kind of told, no more than 125,000 words for a book. I think mine was 105. Um, and my editor was like, you could add more. And I was like, you know, I think this is okay. They didn't win anything. They got really close. They were fascinating. I think I tried to outline how, like, I, I felt like this was fine. And so maybe even with the documentary, the amount of parts would be interesting to see because they didn't quite get there. Um, and you don't want to make them out to be just as important as the Bulls. I think there's a difference between saying they weren't as important, but they were, they did drive the conversation in a different way about how the league would change. And I think that's really relevant. And if you're just a Jordan fan, seeing how and why he struggled to get past the Knicks, he did every time, but seeing how difficult it was for him at times was interesting too. Yeah, no, that, that Forrest Gump comparison you make early on too, I feel like that's dead on. Like they, they follow all the threads through the 90s NBA with you know Jordan blowing up the league, making it an international sensation. Uh, you, they're, the Knicks are there at every turn. Uh, I just also, and I know you mentioned... Um, you know, not really being sure what you want to do next. 
But I was just curious if like, you know, if, if you had to write a book, maybe from your on either a team or a player specifically from your time covering the Knicks on the beat, who would it be? And why would it be Pablo Prigioni? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was watching someone put up a clip the other day or like a, not a thread. I guess it was just a, a clip of Pablo. And I was thinking about how much I enjoyed covering that guy. He, he probably was my favorite Nick just to watch. Um, because the effort was always there. It's it's funny. In some ways, he I, I don't think of him as fitting the 90s Knicks. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he's still kind of a smaller Euro guy. Uh, so it's probably not what you'd see as fitting those teams. But just the hustle was there. I mean, you did see plays like that. There's one clip of Starks and the Knicks playing the Sonics at one point. Starks just, you know, racing all over the court, diving all over the floor, you know, dribbling the ball while he's still on the ground and like popping back up and hitting this three from the corner, like sort of stuff. I feel like you would have seen Pablo do, you know? Um, so no, he would not have fit the 96. Don't let me not even make that, you know, comparison, but no, I, I love Pablo. Um, and maybe it was the most enjoyable guy to, to write about and just to cover during those years. I, I feel like every other story I was writing was talking about how much better the Knicks were when Carmelo was on the court with them versus when he was out there without him. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's funny. Someone, when I first started writing this book, a lot of people were like, you got to do your next one on like the, you know, the postscript of what yours was on like the 2000 to the, you know, 2020 Knicks. I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't have to do that. <laughs> and no, I don't want to do that. Um, you'll notice from reading this book, um, there, you know, like you mentioned before, Dolan's in it. Uh, he comes in right at the end of the era. And I love it that way. Because I, from where I was sitting, keep in mind, I said, I want to do everybody's chapters. You want to give a full portrait of everybody. You want to humanize these people. Granted, I will say, I don't know Jim Dolan, never spoken with them, only know what's been out there. Um, so maybe there is a, a way of like really humanizing him. I don't think people are particularly interested in hearing that. Um, but I mean, also it's your job as a reporter to get to the bottom of whatever it is, regardless of what you think people want to tell the truth. I just, it, I'll put it this way. If he is anywhere near kind of the way he's talked about, as far as just kind of, you know, obstructing certain things and just kind of making decisions really rashly. If, if, if he's as black and white as he sounds with a lot of stuff, it just wasn't that compelling to me to do that because I want to humanize someone that has a lot of gray as opposed to black and white. I feel like most of the people I did that with had that in this book. So the idea of like, basically, if there's, I'd put it this way, if there's nothing really overwhelmingly positive to say at any point, it's just kind of me killing the guy and reporting on all the things that he got wrong and that he did that killed the franchise. That's not intriguing to me. And granted, I don't think everything he did was that necessarily, or there were a lot of things that the franchise got wrong that maybe weren't the result of him directly, maybe. But I'm just not even interested. Like, yes, you would get some great stories on the faux pas of that, you know, those years with Jamal Crawford and David Lee. And I think we know that. And, you know, Nate Robinson, there's a difference between like getting some really great anecdotes and writing a book and stringing them together. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to say, why does this matter? And I could tell you why the 90s Knicks mattered. And obviously, the 2000 to 2020 Knicks mattered to Knicks fans. But do they matter? Like, what reason would people have to read that book 
when I was just talking about before, I could give you a reason that all these other fan bases or people that are fans of certain teams would want to read it. Why would this team like that with those teams and, you know, post two thousands, I don't know, unless they just want to read about, you know, accidents and car crashes. I don't know why you want to, uh, you know, that, that's not my, and that's never been my style to like be a pig and just roll around in the mud. Like, I kind of feel like that's what I would be trying to do if I tried to write a book on that era. Yeah, absolutely. No, I just having him sort of like him coming at the end and the sort of like knowing that, you know, the next sale is going to be to that, like it sort of hangs over the, like, it's like a, almost like a villain towards the end. Like, you know, what's coming like, and I, I really like it that way. Thanks man. Appreciate it. No, but um, I, I do think, you know, this is an appealing book for in every, the every man of an NBA fan, because you know, the way I always try to like explain fandom to people, you know, when, when people do the diehard stuff or the, I only watch the Knicks, you know, I'm, I'm a diehard Knicks fan, grew up watching all the Knicks games, still do obviously to, to, to do this whole operation with these gentlemen here, but I'm an NBA fan first and foremost, you know, the NBA and basketball, that's what made me fall in love with basketball. So for me, I enjoy reading about stuff from other teams just because, you know, this is the league ultimately that made me fall in love with the game and ultimately fall in love with the Knicks. You know, so to me, it's not, that's sort of like the bigger story. If, if you're a basketball fan, you generally are an NBA fan and you want to hear the quality NBA stories, you know, there, there's a lot of good history here and you got to be able to not just, you know, go through your own team's history over and over and over again, then another angle, then another angle, then another angle. While that's important. And of course, you know, as fans, we're going to want to read all that stuff. I also want to read about the Lakers. I want to read about uh, the, the Celtics. I want to read about like all these other teams because like they are important pieces to the league that is built that, you know, the Knicks play in and have history tied to. So th I think there's enough in this too, you know, like we talked about the multiple rivalries about where Pat ends up, you know, going to the heat like that. That's just a good NBA story in general. To me, it's not Knicks exclusive. This is just a, it's not just about basketball. It's not just about the Knicks. To me, I think there's enough things that, relate to it there's enough elements there's enough layers that tie to you know a, a regular basketball fan a regular nba fan and you know if this is a league that you love then this would be a book that you love because to me it's one of the better stories in the history of the league just top to bottom i mean a lot of drama you know there's the basketball stuff there's the off the court stuff there's the on-court animosity with people like we brought up with reggie miller you know there's the the behind the scenes stuff with pat riley and the Knicks front office and the, then the there's never usually a, a hatred like that with the front office guy so for it to become that way with him going to Miami, like a lot of layers, a lot of layers and a lot of appeal to the NBA fans in general, in my opinion. Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. That was by design for sure, um, which is probably not that hard to do. But I, as a first time author, everything about this was difficult. So I hope people enjoy it. I hope I, it doesn't read like I was a complete rookie with this. But it, um, I, at some point, I'll look forward to doing it again. I kind of want to have a little bit of time to breathe. But um I don't know. I'm hopeful people enjoy it first and foremost, because it, it, you know, it'll, it'll sound corny and probably is a little bit, but um, if there's a fan base that kind of deserves to have something fun to read on a team like that, uh, it's, it's y'all, you know, it's been a long time since they've won anything. That was a team that really was near and dear to people. And so you want to, you want to capture it, right? It's going to be on library shelves. You know, hopefully we always have libraries. If so, forever. Um, so you want to make sure, you know, I why I was so intent on getting the Mason's family and his folks, uh, because you don't, you know, and even with Dolan, like why I just had no interest in killing anybody. Um, 
with the reporting if it wasn't merited or if I didn't go that far into the story because it sits there forever. And um, you, you want to make sure you're giving people every opportunity to respond to you before you write about something that's that permanent. You know, even with stories, you want to be careful with that. Um, but certainly for a book that will sit there for years and years and years. So um, so I, I, I did enjoy it. It was a hard process. I was pretty upfront about that on Twitter sometimes about there were certain things about it I did not enjoy. Um, there are parts of it that still make me uncomfortable from a promotional standpoint, but I, but I, you know, I am proud of it at this point, and um, I hope people enjoy it and buy it, and read it, and um, and I really hope someday that uh, that people can watch it too, and um, I feel good about that being the case, but um, won't count the chickens before they're hatched. I mean, on the on the watch it point, the only comment I got there is they have that was it a Showtime show on or HBO show coming out for the Lakers. Um, yes, I don't think it'll be that, but yes, I do know it, that's Jeff Promise's book, Showtime. It should be that. I think. <laughs> I, I think if you're gonna go, you should go the same way, like balls to the wall. Like you gotta really <laughs> lean in because it's gonna be super serious. It'll be graphic that way, but also you get that bit of hilarity that you can sprinkle on top. I think if it were to happen in a world where I don't control anything except for the moments where I make the comment on this spot, I think that's that's the lean in. I. I, I, it would be, to me, it would be a top viewership record because I don't want the Lakers thing got so much buzz just for like, I think having that element of hilarity to it, there was that time period plus the hilarity that they try to sprinkle into the trailer. I think if you did some of that stuff with like the Riley antics or like the guys in the team, like Oakley betting, like, I feel like you could really, it could work. It could work. And Adam McKay on the line. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, hey, man, I'm not ruling out anything, but I, I, I'd be, I'd be a little surprised if that happens with this team. A little bit surprised, but uh, I'm looking forward to watching it. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. You guys have been great. Thank you. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, like I said, I know you guys put up a piece, um, you know, Q and A from the other day, and I saw you guys, some of you guys tweeting about me um, the other day, just. You guys have always been huge supporters of my work, and I don't, I don't take that for granted. Not just from you all, but just from the fan base in general. I, when I covered the Knicks, was at a time in my life where like I really lacked confidence in my writing. Um, I came over to the beat, you know, because my editor was not the happiest with my Jets coverage, which um, I'm not used to that feeling because I've worked so hard and put so much time into what I'm doing, and was working really hard on the Jets beat, like it. The fact that he wasn't in love with my work had nothing to do with my effort at all. I was trying really hard. Um, so I wanted to, to work even harder, with, you know, within reason to to really hammer the Knicks beat and do a good job on it and to try to be fair at a time where obviously people can make digs at the team. And, um, you know, but I I developed so much more confidence being on that beat and, and writing for a fan base that was going to hold your feet to the fire in terms of fairness, in terms of writing something that was new and creative and giving something that was new and creative. And uh, you guys have always been right at the top of that list as far as the support. I've always felt that. And um, so just know for me that that means the world. And um, I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I just want an opportunity to fanboy for a second. I don't, I don't get the opportunity often. <laughs> I've never actually spoken to you. Um, but, you know, in that time, I was probably like 18, 19 years old. I literally like lived on your Twitter page. Like this is long before I ever thought I'd cover the Knicks or anything like that. I just was an obsessed kid with the Knicks. 
and <laughs> you were the good guy like all the time you i thought you were a superhero still do so thank you yeah man you reached out to i remember at times like tweeting at you and like you were you responded to everyone and everything yeah. like I, I i've got like you know replies from you from like years ago and it really you know young you know journalists and stuff like we all appreciate it uh, that it's crazy because like i don't even remember that stuff but hearing that makes me feel really good because you you know i was a kid and reach out to people too and you you know it, it, it sometimes time gets tight but you never know who you're reaching you never know what their goals are you never know what they hope to accomplish you never know what it means to somebody so my you know it within reason you always want to just try to get back to people and uh it's it's rare to have the sort of support i've had so you don't want to take that for granted especially with people that are college age kids you know uh so it's always meant a lot to me to be able to have the contact with you guys and frankly to know what matters to y'all just as a writer that is covering a team like to know your audience a little bit is cool so the stuff you guys give me credit for sometimes of like hanging out after a you know um an open practice or something is like to me not a big deal but it's i could tell how big a deal it, it is to you guys you know um which like yeah. i said makes me feel good i'm just a dude but you don't treat me that way and i appreciate that yeah not nah, like just just having been at at that specific hangout like the, like just to be totally candid like we didn't know what we were doing with the Knicks wall at that time like we had just <laughs> slightly resurrected it you know ryan had just brought it back and we sort of were half-assing shooting from the hip on what we were going to do and uh you know it's a competitive space being in sports media and normally sure. people are looking to further themselves and it was interesting to have you you know at least come hang out with us and be like i think that there's room for you guys to do some of this stuff i think that you guys can do x y and z and i remember we had a real good conversation about it and like thus honestly spurred this podcast uh not as an exaggeration like we went gung-ho after that because we we're like oh guy he seems to follow what we do quality and he thinks we could do a pod. Like, yeah, we we could do a fucking podcast. So then we started the podcast pretty much right afterwards. You were our first guest on this podcast, so we've come full circle. But like, it, it That's does crazy to think about. Wow, it, wow. it's been it's been some time, man. But like that that was we had barely three thousand followers on Twitter. We didn't have you know dick and way of what we were gonna do in terms of planning and and big picture stuff. And you know, just being able to like see sometimes where things snowball from. Like for us. Again, you say it was a small thing. Probably was. We were just hanging out. I remember watching the Giants, just chopping it up. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And, uh, you know, the impact for that kind of stuff, like, yeah, like I was working two, three jobs at the time. I was a maintenance man, just trying to, like, wow. get through school, just trying to, like, I, I had no followers on Twitter. And it's just like, yeah, all of a sudden, like, I, I remember I went home the day. I was like, yeah, I could do this shit. And then all of a sudden, you know, here we are later on. You know, we figured our own stuff out. You now circled back to the Knicks, have a book about it. It's like, it's cool to kind of like grow with you in a way and, and from that moment, but like Completely. it really did mean a lot to us in that moment in time because it gave us like that little push that we needed from somebody who we respected. And it, I feel like it really got us going. So it really does honestly mean the world. So that's a message, brother. I mean, that's literally what I was saying y'all did for me. Um, I remember having very small following when I took over the Knicks beat. And, um, and so, you know, just the fact that it grew was only because people cared about what I had to say at a time where, like I said, I didn't really care what I had to say at that time. So um, the fact that I could help with confidence after y'all did that for me, is like, that's exactly what it should be. So happy to do it, but I'm happy for y'all and uh, keep plugging away for sure. Appreciate that. Yeah. So look, Chris, 
seriously, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sitting down talking with us about all this. You know, we could wrap, you know, kind of here. But guys, please make sure January 18th is the official date for the book, right? Uh, but I've seen some bookstores have already starting to put some out. Barnes and Noble's some- gone buck wild with it. They're just like, <laughs> this dude's book is for sale. Y'all want this? Like, I think they literally just got it early and they're just kind of like, whatever with it. So people, I'm noticing that everybody that's going out to get it somewhere has got it early from Barnes and Noble. But yeah, it comes out uh, the 18th and it should be, at least in New York, it should be relatively everywhere at that point. Yeah, so hit, hit Barnes and Noble, hit your local bookstores, uh, check it out. If not, it's on Amazon. You could pre-order it right now, right this second. You can, you know, whatever next week, you can get to it. But make sure it's Blood at the Garden, uh, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, of course, by Chris Herring. I, we will very soon see a New York Times bestseller sticker on that cover. I am certain there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, we've already spoke on it. It's going to happen. It's, it's a lock uh, as far as I'm concerned. But you guys got to make sure you buy the goddamn book. Uh, please, we didn't just do a podcast for you to listen to Chris for this long about the book for you to then get to the end here and then not purchase the book. So go, go, go after this ends. go, go buy it. If you haven't already done so, I assume some of you, hopefully uh, if you are not heathens have already placed your pre-orders months in advance, but if you have not, please correct that Amazon Barnes Noble, wherever you got to go, go pick up the book. Uh, yeah, we didn't mention it. the good shit too in here. We didn't mention the good shit in the book too. You got to read that to get everything like, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of stuff that we didn't even yeah there's so much like seriously like don't just listen to this shit and be like we're Mm -hmm. yeah like buy the book read the book yeah yeah, there's never a a podcast will never do a book justice there's too much there's always too much so you please just you know use your eyeballs go get the book uh that's all we got to say at this point but again chris seriously thank you for your time appreciate it thank you guys really appreciate really really appreciate you thank you so much no problem. So, you know, you guys make sure uh, you give us a five-star rating and review. Helps us keep doing what we do. Uh, we got Knicks Hawks. Uh, we're recording on Saturday right now, the 15th. We got Knicks Hawks. Uh, there is no Cam Reddish revenge game. He is still out right now. But we will hopefully talk to you guys on the other side of